Chapter 6, Part 3 from the sermon series, The Gospel of John, spoken by Pastor Peter on. Several years ago, uh, it was my wife's birthday, and I had wanted to take her out for a real nice meal at a super fancy restaurant. This was us at a very fancy restaurant in New York City. I didn't know where to take her because usually on her birthday, I would often go to Korean restaurants with her. And so I asked some people in the church, I say, what fancy restaurant would you recommend? And so they recommended a French restaurant. Never heard of it before. Uh, very expensive. I called this French restaurant, made a reservation. They asked, is there a reason why you're coming here? I said, what's my wife's birthday? We get there, and I'm telling you, the service was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. They had menus printed out, her name on it, wishing her a happy birthday. Pretty cool, right? It was a full course meal. We had the food. It was pretty good, all right? It was pretty good. And after we finished, it was the most money I've ever spent on a restaurant. It was so much money. And when we walked out of there, we looked at each other and we said, I'm still hungry. I'm still hungry. I was so hungry. It wasn't a lot of food. I mean, the quality, I think, was high, but the quantity was so bad. And I'm thinking, why can't we have both? If you're going to spend that kind of money, why can't the you know, quality match the quantity? But it didn't. And so you know what Jenny and I did to satisfy our hunger? I mean, it's so sad. We had a hot dog at, the New York, at one of those hot dog stands in New York City, Manhattan, because we were so hungry, right? I mean, it was so bad. We spent all this money on this good food, and yet we were so hungry, and we had to satisfy that hunger by eating some nasty New York hot dogs. <laughs> and I share that with you, because it's funny. But the truth is, I think a lot of us, we do that with the hunger that we feel in our souls sometimes. We're longing to satisfy our soul with things that actually is not healthy for us. It'll actually hurt us more than help us. And yet at the time we're into it, because our souls are so hungry, we're longing to feed ourselves with the things that maybe our flesh feels and different things like that. But over time what happens, you realize that it just doesn't satisfy. It really doesn't. And you've tried everything. I've tried everything. We've tried things of this world to try to satisfy us, but it just doesn't satisfy Today, as we continue in the chapter of John chapter 6, Jesus makes the first of the seven profound I am statements in the gospel of John. The first of the seven that we're going to look at. The thing, the thing that he tells these people, he says this. He says, I am the bread of life. What does that mean? What does I am the bread of life really mean? And what happens to our life when you and I can live it? when we know that the only thing that can satisfy our soul, this hunger that we feel, is actually Jesus Christ. What happens? That's what I want to talk to you about today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6, verses 25 to 40. This is going to be sort of a two-part. Next Sunday, I'm going to finish it up. Uh, Jesus kind of gives a long discourse of what it means to be the bread of life. And so next Sunday, I'll finish that up for you. But here's the, the introduction to this. Verse 25. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you. Not because you understood the miraculous signs, but don't be so concerned about the perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. 
They replied, we want to perform God's work too. We should, what should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work. If you have a, a highlighter, highlight this. This is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scripture says Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Let me just pause right there. If you remember the beginning of chapter 6, well, who are these people? These are the people that followed Jesus because he fed them. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? He already performed a miracle, and now they're asking for another one, right? And here's how Jesus responds to this. He says, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though you've seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. This is the word of God. Can we bow our heads for a moment of prayer? Lord, I think many of us in this room might have read this several times in our lifetime. And yet our souls still hunger and we search for other things but, uh, and not you. And so, God, I don't know what kind of hungers we came into today, into this room. Some of us are really hungry for love. It's Mother's Day and we're struggling, even as a mom, struggling as a wife, maybe as a husband. And, Lord, there is a deficiency of love, and when there's a deficiency of love that we encounter in our lives, we often have so much hunger that has the capacity to really impact us in a very negative way. So, Lord, help us to understand what does it mean to really believe and to know that you are the bread of life. May we always pursue you, no matter how difficult this life gets. And so, God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth, and I pray that the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray, God, it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And it's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Again, let me just remind you, the people were following Jesus. These people, they were the remnants of the 5,000 in which he fed. All right? And so they were following him for a purpose. They wanted more food. They realized this guy can provide us food. And food insecurity was real back in the first century, more so than even today. And because of that, these people were following Jesus Christ from town to town, from place to place, so that he could feed them again. They were pursuing him for that. And in that place, Jesus says to them, he shares with them the very first I am statement. And just to kind of set up what the I am statements are all about, the I am statements oftentimes takes place through one of Jesus' miracles, and then he'll sort of explain that miracle through an I am statement. Sometimes Jesus will explain the I am statement when there's like a Jewish celebration, like a holiday in which they're celebrating, and Jesus will use that holiday because Jewish holidays were very spiritual and religious in nature. And Jesus would take that holiday and he would explain it by using an I am statement to attach himself to that holiday. And this is very apropos to this time. Because during this time, it was during the Passover time. And you guys all remember the Passover story when God led his people out of Egypt, right? And he parted the Red Sea. 
Right? Remember when God would rain down manna from heaven and he fed the people of God for 40 years in the wilderness? And so during this time of Passover, Jewish people would eat unleavened bread. They still do it till this day. Why? To remind them how God had provided for them in the wilderness. That in their physical hunger, that God had provided manna from heaven. And so that is very apropos to why Jesus now shares this I am statement with them. He's telling them, I am the bread of life. Yes, you're here because you're hungry and you want food from me. But understand that no matter what, you're going to always get hungry and thirsty again. I am the bread of life. you got to come to me not just for the food, but you have to know that I am the food. Amen. That I am truly the food. And so what does it mean that Jesus is our bread of life? In verse 35, he says this again. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You see, these people were following him so that they can get fed by Jesus Christ. And so Jesus was trying to make a very powerful statement and help them to believe that no matter what, the hunger that resides in you is more than your physical hunger. There's something deeper there. And he's saying, only I can satisfy that. But you got to be willing to eat of me. Now, next week when we look at this, Jesus gets very offensive in the way he talks about what this bread is. And we'll talk about that next week. But at this point in time, Jesus wants these people to realize, and he wants us to know this. All of you have hungers today. You walked in here with some level of hunger. And if we don't address that hunger with Jesus Christ being the bread so that we don't hunger and thirst no more, we're going to end up harming ourselves and hurting ourselves in the long run. And some of us, we have these natural hungers, and they're not bad necessarily, but the hunger that you have in your soul is something that God created so that you can long and hunger for him. But for us, what we do many times is that when we have these hungers, we look at the world and we try to get the world's whatever bread the world provides for us to try to satisfy that hunger, and it just doesn't satisfy. Like for a lot of us, some of us, we are truly hungry for money. Your parents raised you to be wealthy one day, to do well, to go to a good school, to be successful. Now, there's nothing wrong with money. Really, there's nothing wrong with money. Money is not a sin. Money is neutral. But if you love money, if you hunger for money, if you think you can be satisfied and encounter joy and peace through it, you're in a lot of trouble. Money doesn't satisfy. Talk to it. We, have, we actually have some rich people in this church. Talk to them. They will tell you it doesn't satisfy. Makes life a little more comfortable, don't get me wrong. And it might satisfy for a little bit, but it never fills you. It never does. For some of you, it's success. Maybe not success in what, but success in everything that you do. You're hungry for that. If you try to be successful and think that that's going to satisfy your hunger, you're in for a very rude awakening. We do that with food, right, sometimes. We do that with lust. Some of us you have an insatiable desire, a lustful desire. I think we all do at some levels. And we'll do whatever we can to fulfill that hunger. And when we do, we realize that it just never, ever satisfies. Popularity, fame, that's a real thing today, especially for these young kids because they want to get real well-known in social media and things. Some of you want to get more well-known, famous. Some of you are hungry for a relationship. You long for it. Some of you are even married and you're hungry for another relationship because you don't feel like your spouse is loving you properly. Not enough. And so there's a void in your longing to be loved the way you believe you deserve to be loved. And there's only one person that can do that, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, I am the bread of life. 
You see, the bread of life, Jesus, is, is connected to this idea of eternal life. And that's the true meaning of this. That when you and I pursue Jesus Christ as the bread of life, what he gives us in exchange of that is eternal life. Look at verse 40. Look at verse 40. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up on the last day. Now, eternal life, now when we think about eternal life, we think of it as a future tense. When we die, it's a place that we're going to when we, when we die. And that's part of it. But I want you to know something. Eternal life can be experienced right now today Amen. where you are. Amen. You can encounter eternal life today, meaning you can get a taste of what heaven's going to be like. You don't got to wait till you die to experience what that's going to be like. You can taste a little bit of what that's going to be like here today. But Jesus has to be our bread of life. Amen. If he's not our bread of life, we cannot taste. We cannot encounter what the satisfaction of how Jesus is the only one who can truly satisfy our souls. We're not going to be able to encounter that. So how do we do it? How does Jesus Christ become bread for our life? How does Jesus Christ become bread for our life? That's what we're going to answer today. Here's the first thing that he teaches us in this passage. Jesus becomes our bread of life when we pursue him as an end, not a means to an end. When we pursue him as an end, not a means to an end. Because these people were pursuing Jesus not as an end, but as a means to an end. Look at what Jesus says to them. He says, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you. Not because you understood the miraculous signs, but don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you, for God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. These people were only pursuing Jesus as a means to an end. They wanted physical food. And as a result of that, they followed him because of that. And Jesus said, don't do that. There's something deeper. Like, yes, didn't you see the miracle that I did in the beginning of chapter 6? That's a miracle. And now you just want another miracle. Like, you won't stop and pause and figure out where this miracle should be pointing to. It's pointing to me. That you got to come to me, not for food, but come to me to satisfy your true hunger. How many of us do the same thing? How many of us pursue Jesus Christ for the perks? How many of you pursue Jesus Christ for the blessing in your life? I get it. It's a natural human tendency. But what Jesus wants you and I to realize is that the hunger that your soul has today, it can only be satisfied when Jesus is the end, not a means to an end. When Jesus is the ultimate, not the penultimate. That's the only way that you and I can really connect with God. That's the only way we'll be able to encounter and encounter his true, deep satisfaction. But a lot of us, we pursue him for the perks. He's a means to an end. Why do you pray today? Do you pray because you need him to answer some prayer requests? Do you pray because you're looking for some results from God? Or do you pray because you really want to long for him and you long for his presence? I mean, we can always pray. Jesus says we can pray for things. But if that's the only motivation of why you pray to him every day, I'm sorry to tell you, you're just like these people. You pursue him as a means to an end. Why do you read the Bible? Do you read it out of a sense of duty? Christians have to do it, right? Are you reading it in hopes that maybe God will see you more favorably, then he can bless you more in your life? Or are you reading the word because you just want to get to know God more? You want to draw closer to him. You want to know more intimately who this God is in your life. Very different, right? It's very different. Why do you even come here on Sundays? Is it for the great children's program, right? Is it because, you know, this is what you did growing up? I get it. Ritual, rit rituals 
doing things that are ritual, it, it gets us in this habit. You're hoping that God will look upon you more favorably. Are you coming here, not necessarily for yourself, but you're coming here to worship God with your church community and asking the question, God, how can I impact your kingdom? By serving the church, by also being a part of a community or group where we go out of this church, and our thing that we think about is how do we transform this world for Jesus Christ? And that's important for us to do. You know what's so sad is that a lot of us, you've encountered miracles. God has answered your prayers for a lot of you. And you know what we've done? We're like these people. We don't stop and we pause and reflect upon it. We move on to the next request and the next miracle we want Jesus to perform in our lives. And Jesus is saying, stop and pause. Don't you know what these miracles and these prayer requests are pointing to? It's not just pointing for you to go to your next prayer request or the next miracle you're looking for him. It's pointing to me. And so how do we make Jesus an end? How do we make Jesus an end instead of a means to an end? You know how it is? It's when you are willing to surrender yourself to your king. It's when you are willing to surrender yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's when you see yourself as a servant to your king. That's when you pursue Jesus as an end rather than a means to an end. Are we willing to do that today? What does it look like when you submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Just ask anyone who lives in a monarchy. They'll tell you the key, the chief thing that anyone who lives in a monarchy, the one thing we have to do if there's a king is you have to obey. You have to obey. If you're not willing to obey, then you don't see that person as your king. And the great thing about obedience, and listen, it's not easy to obey all the time. But the cool thing about obedience in God's economy is that it doesn't determine whether you're good or not or more spiritual or not. Obedience leads to a deeper, more profound relationship that we can have with our God the Father. And you just think about this. Like, think about if you're married, think about when you first met your wife or your husband. You were the best version of yourself when you first met them. You were so enchanted with them that you, like, obedience was natural. Like, you just did everything they wanted you to do. Like, they didn't have to convince you. You just were the best version of yourself. Like, for me, when I first met Jenny, we dated for almost seven years. Do you know how many times she came to my house to pick me up for a date? I can count on one hand how many times she did that. I did it every time. And many times, she lived about 45 minutes away from me. I'd pick her up because I live in Palisades Park, I bring her back to my neighborhood so that we can have a meal, and then I drive her back home. Isn't that crazy? That's so crazy. It makes no sense. Why would I waste the gas and the toll? She lives that far. She should come to me. But I did it because she wanted me to and had no problems obeying her until about five years. And after that, I'm like, you got to start coming to me. All right? No more. I'm wasting a lot of money here. But think about the how we were the best version of ourselves when we were in love. When you're in love with Jesus, you are the best version of yourself. Obedience comes naturally. You're not, you're not feeling like you're under the tyranny of a, of a taskmaster just trying to get you to do things to make your life miserable. You realize, you come to the understanding that obedience leads to true shalom. It leads to peace, that God is not telling you to obey to make your life miserable. God wants your life to be at a certain place, and it's not going to get there without Jesus being the bread of life. 
And in order to see that, in order to gain this kind of intimacy with him, we have to be willing to surrender ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, to the best of our ability, that we have to be willing to do that. And obedience isn't easy. It's going to require some things of us. You know, it's really patronizing to pursue God just so that he could give us some things. It's really patronizing to pursue Jesus as a means to an end. Think about that for just a moment. My friend, who's a bit older, he's younger than me, but he's single. He just started getting on those dating apps. And in those dating apps, he's, he's been able to meet some ladies. And they're talking, they're texting. And they always ask him, what do you do for work? Now, my friend's very successful. He's wealthy, all right? He works in finance. But you know what he says? He says, I work in nonprofit. Now, he's not lying. He does work for a huge nonprofit, but what he does is that he works for the investment team. This foundation, their goal is to support the things of, of, of great charities that are doing some great things around the world, but they only have a limited amount of funds. They don't want to run out of it. So one of the ways in how they ensure that they don't run out of it is they take that money and they invest it in the marketplace. He's on that investment team, and he gets paid a whole lot of money to be on that team. But when he says to these ladies, I work in nonprofit, they never respond to his text. <laughs> I laugh. But why does he do that? You think my friend loves rejection? No. He hates it. But why is he doing that? Because he doesn't want somebody to pursue him because of what he might be able to give to them. He wants a woman that will pursue him and just wants to get to know him for who he is. That's why he tells him he works in nonprofit. Why do you pursue God? Do you really just pursue him so that he could bless your life? Or do you pursue him because of how overwhelmed you are that he would send his son to die for you on the cross and resurrect from the dead? And now he's king and you are willing to surrender yourself to his lordship. If you want to encounter Jesus to be the bread of your life, you got to make him an end, not a means to win. He needs to be the ultimate, not the penultimate. That's a key thing. The last thing that we see here. Jesus becomes the bread of our life when we receive his acceptance. When we receive his acceptance. This is key. All right, verse 37. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. Look at how emphatic Jesus is. He says, I will never reject them. Some of us in this room you're still pursuing God in hopes that he would accept you. That's dangerous. That's not biblical. God has already accepted you because of Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to separate you from the love of God if you truly believe in him. That's what Jesus tells these people. He says, the only work you need to do is believe in me. That's it. Because God has created this position for us to go before him. In 1 Corinthians 1, uh, Paul says this, that in Christ, that we are in Christ. That means that when God sees us, he doesn't see what we do, what we don't do necessarily. What he sees first is that we are in Christ, that Christ is in us. That's beautiful. That really is. You and I have been accepted. What this verse is really teaching us is that Jesus isn't welcoming these people. God is the one who gave these people to Jesus and he's saying embrace them and keep them in the fold. What acceptance of Jesus Christ really looks like, this is showing the capacity of Jesus protecting us and nurturing us in our journey in life. 
That when you and I embrace the acceptance of Jesus, you know what we're embracing? We're embracing his protection and we're embracing his nurture. Now, sometimes that can mean that there's a result that can happen as a result of that. But many times what I've learned over my life, it doesn't necessarily matter what types of circumstances need to happen in order for you and I to encounter his protection and his nurturing. In fact, sometimes the only way we're going to know that God is protecting us is when we go through some hardships in life. When you feel like some things are going against you. That's when you know that there's a God who's protecting you and nurturing you. But what I've really realized over the years of me being a follower of Jesus, your external circumstances do not need to change at all for you to come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ can protect and nurture you today. Amen? He really can. Your obedience does not dictate whether God will accept you or not. He's already accepted you and me. And that's why you and I get to obey him. Shalom and peace is not devoid of sacrifice and suffering and hardships. It's part of it. In fact, you don't really know what peace is like unless you know what unpeace is like. When you know what life is like when you don't have peace. When you and I accept Jesus Christ, when we embrace his acceptance of our lives, man, you encounter his nurture and his protection. Like today, I'm teaching the second part of emotionally healthy spirituality. It's know yourself that you may know God. Know yourself that you may know God. If you don't know yourself, you're never going to know God. Only you can live your life. And the problem with a lot of us is that we're living our lives in such a way where, where, where we, we are wanting other people to accept us in such a way we're willing to change the way we want to live our lives. We're so uncertain about who we are many times that we end up living the life of an imposter or we create a false self of, false self of who we are. When you and I can embrace the acceptance of Jesus, you know what the most freeing thing is? You can live the life that God had created you to live. You can just be yourself and you don't have to worry if people accept you or not. There's a sense of freedom there. The religious leaders, what they did was they taught the people of God that their faith is based upon do's and don'ts. And what Jesus is really wanting these people to understand is this. All you have to do is believe in me and embrace my acceptance. Then you will encounter the protection and nurture of God. How do you know if you're struggling with this? How do you know if you're struggling? I prayed this week a lot about this passage and see how I can kind of bring it to you. And I was like, God, what do you want me to address? What, what is our church struggling with today? You know what it is? You know how I know if you're struggling with this? is when you're worrying a lot. Do you worry a lot? No, I'm only preaching to the choir here because worry is a part of my generational sin of my family sin pattern. My mother is a constant worrier. She passed that down to me. But when you and I are worried so much, when we are overwhelmed with our worry, sometimes that becomes so bigger than God that we can't even encounter his protection and his nurture. And when we worry so much, Jesus becomes a means to an end because we need somebody to deal with our worry, right? And that's dangerous too. Worrying is one of the things that will oftentimes destroy the joy in our lives. And again, a lot of us, we worry so much because we're longing for comfort and security and we think that the only way that we're not going to worry is if God gives us that, whatever it might be that you might be worrying about today, whether it be finances, lack of relationships, whatever it might be, that we're constantly worried. Why are we so worried when we have Jesus Christ, when he's promising us, he, when he's promising us that he will be our bread, when he's promising us that we would, he will nurture and protect us? 
Why are we so worried today? Why are you and I so worried? Some of us were unwilling to do the things that God may want us to do in our lives because we're so worried. Why are we so worried? Do you really think God is that small that if you actually obey him and follow him that you're going to be live a diminished life? I mean, these are the lies that Satan has, has spoken to you. Why are we so afraid? Why are we so worried? So worried about things. Don't you know that your life is more precious to God than you could ever make it to be for yourself? So why are we so worried today? Why do we constantly worry? Look at what Jesus says about this in the, in, the, in the Beatitudes. Look at what he says. And I want you to hear this today. Because there's a reason why you worry so much today. He says it. I don't know if you're going to catch it. But I hope you do. Look at Matthew 6, 25 to 27. See if you can catch why. What is the root of our worries today? Verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying at a single hour to your life, did you catch this? Jesus is saying, stop worrying. Don't you know how valuable you are? You see, the reality is if we worry too much, if we're consumed with worry, you have forgotten how valuable you are to God. That's why we're worrying so much. But if you truly know your worth before God, if you know that God sees you and you are so valuable, so much so, that he would send Jesus Christ to come and die for you on the cross and resurrect from the dead, then you don't have to worry. God has you. God has me. And when we worry so much, we cannot embrace the acceptance of God. Because how is Jesus going to comfort you and care for you and nurture you when you and I are so worried, when our worries become bigger than God? So what will you lay down today? What worry are you going to lay down here today? Because Jesus wants you to participate in the bread of life today. He wants you to eat of the bread of life because if you do, you will never hunger nor thirst no more. Will you stop making him a means to an end? Surrender yourself to his lordship. And when you receive his acceptance, I'm not worrying and just trusting in God. I worry all the time. I hate worrying. I hate it. And God has taught me a lot to just trust in him. And over the years, I've learned. I've learned. But I still struggle with it because it's a family sin pattern in my life. My mother still worries a lot. In fact, I sometimes joke around with her. I tell her, you don't know how to live life unless you worry. Because you always worry. You're finding things to worry about. And so some of that has been brought down to me. And I still remember when Christina was in uh, third grade, I used to worry so much about her, about her development as a child. Because she'd come home and be like all excited, Dad, let's do homework. I'm like, okay, let's do it. And I would, I couldn't, like, I didn't know, like, where third grade level should be. But she didn't get things. And I've shared this with you before. She didn't get the math. She didn't get the English. She would skip over, like, pronouns, like, important ones. And I'm, I'm like, what's going on here? And so this was like a progression for me. It wasn't like a huge worry from the beginning, but the more and more I helped her with her homework, the more I started to worry and realizing there might be something wrong with her. And when she got her state scores back from the state in third grade, and they, they, they gave it, they scored it out of 100 during that time, she got a 70 in her English and her math. And I got worried. I said, you know what? 
And the reason why I got worried wasn't because I felt like there's something wrong with her. I felt like the reason why she got a 70 is because of me. Because I'm not a very bright guy, and so it's a reflection of my own intelligence. And so because I was so worried that it's a reflection of me, I put so much pressure on this little girl. I verbally, emotionally abused her many times. I would yell at her. I would do terrible, say terrible things to her. And many times this little girl, she was eight years old, and she would do her homework, and she would cry while she's doing it. She wouldn't, like, cry out loud, but her tears, and it would be hitting her paper, and I would see it. I know I was messing her up, like, mentally, because of my worry. And so I confessed it to my friend Alex. And I said, Alex, like, I'm really struggling with this. I'm, like, messing my daughter up. And he said something to me that really bothered me at the time. But I thank God that he was able to speak that truth. He said, it's so interesting, Peter. I think you're loving and showing less affection to Christina because every time I come to your house, you're so much more affectionate. You, I see you kissing Kayla and Christian on the lips and stuff like that. Like, I see how, like, loving you are towards them. But I don't see you doing that with Christina. And I said to him, I was like, no, it's because Christina's like a little woman. You know, Kayla's like, you know, she's like six. Christian is four. They're like babies. They're my little babies. And he looked at me and he said, Peter, Christina's eight. She's not a woman. <laughs> she's eight years old. <laughs> I was a little offended that he said that to me because I couldn't believe it. I went to bed, I woke up the next day, I took a shower, and in the shower, God showed me that because she has been failing me in school, because I was so worried about her ability to do well in school, I was showing her less love. And I had a good cry in the shower. And I remember I just went up to her room and I woke her up, it was really early on a Sunday morning, and I said, honey, would you please forgive me for what I've done? And of course, kids are the best. They'd never keep a record of wrong. She said, okay, you got it, of course. I gave her a kiss, and I said, I'll never do that again. If I do, all you have to do is say, Daddy, you're doing it again. That was eight. She's 21. She graduated from Rutgers on Thursday. Yeah. And I don't want to brag, but she graduated summa cum laude. Yeah. Now, I did not know what summa cum laude was. So for those who may not know, that means she graduated the top 5% of her class. Magnum is the top 15%. She graduated the top five, the highest honors anyone can graduate with. What would have happened if I kept worrying about her? That from the moment of when God showed me that, I had let go and I said, I'm not going to worry. She's yours now, God. I've tried to help her. We actually hired this woman from church, heard me preach that when she was eight. And she said, uh, can I help and tutor your daughter? I said, please. She grew up never having to worry about her performances anymore. And to ever think that maybe her father will never accept her if she doesn't perform well in school. She had a sense of freedom to just be who herself. And she's a late bloomer. And Jenny and I, we say this almost like, like the last, this week and two weeks ago when she told us she's graduating summa cum laude, I just said, Jenny and I keep looking at ourselves like, who knew? Who knew that she had the capacity to graduate summa cum laude? We would have never, ever predicted it. Who knew? Who knew? 
Who, knew what, who knows what you can become if you stop worrying today? And maybe one day somebody will say, who knew this woman or this man could do the things that they're doing today? Who knew? Will you make Jesus your bread? Will you stop using him as a means to an end? Will he be your ultimate, not your penultimate? Will you? And will you embrace his acceptance of you? Will you stop worrying about things of this world and let go and let him truly protect and nurture you? Let him care for you. Will you get to the place of this realization that life with Jesus is far better than anything else this world has to offer? Because all he asks of you to do today is this. Like he told these people, he says, all you need to do is believe in me. So stop worrying and stop using him as a means to an end. He is the end. Let's pray. I want you to just go to him right now and just say, God, can I just make you the end? Lord, forgive me for using you as a means to an end. May I never do that again. And today I embrace your acceptance over my life. And whatever worries you might carry with you here today, would you lay them down before God? I'm going to give you a moment to do that, and then I'm just going to pray for us. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? God, would you help us to understand our worth in your eyes? I think for my brothers and sisters, for some of them, God, worry has become so big that they often look at themselves not the way that you want us to. Lord, would you really help us to believe in our heart, not with our minds, that if you didn't love us, if we weren't valuable to you, you would have never sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come and die for us on the cross and resurrect from the dead. And God, would you free us from a very myopic Christianity that just pursues you for a means to an end. Help us not to be like these people, to just pursuing Jesus for food. Help us to just pursue you for you. May we surrender ourselves to your lordship. And may we May we receive, may we have the courage and the boldness to embrace your acceptance of us because the Father has given you to us. What a privilege. And as we do that, God, may we encounter your protection and the nurture that you want to give to us today. As we celebrate Mother's Day and how our moms have nurtured us along the way, may we be able to embrace 
and receive your nurture for our lives. So we surrender our worries to you. And I pray, God, that we would truly pursue this bread where we will never hunger and thirst anymore. So forgive us, God, and help us to pursue you, whatever it takes. May our commitment to you, may our commitment to you be as bold and at times be as risky as you are willing to let it be in our lives. And so guide us as a church, but guide us individually as well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.